So sanctity, that's kind of a funny word, isn't it? When's the last time you used the word sanctity? Can you remember? I can't. Have you ever used the word sanctity, ever? I mean, there's some people here, you, you've never heard that word before, and, and, and maybe you've never used it, and you might certainly wonder what in the world that means, sanctity. It seems like kind of an antiquated word, and yet we're going to find it's a, a very important word. Always has been, and certainly is today, as, as uh, in our society, you know, we're, we're navigating various issues and, and and what it means to be a human being and how we ought to think about human life. Sanctity comes from the Latin. Anyone take Latin? Sanctus. We get saint, we get sacred from this word. Literally, the word sanctity means holiness. Holiness. So when we talk about the sanctity of life this morning, we're talking about the holiness of human life. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear the word holy, I think perfect, really, really good. So to live a holy life would be to kind of live a really good, perfect life. To be holy is to be exceptionally good. And maybe you think this morning you're not holy. Maybe you think you know someone who is, but maybe you wouldn't call yourself holy, but what you're gonna see is that you are in fact holy because the word Holiness doesn't primarily mean perfection, goodness. That word that comes from the Bible, holy, literally means set apart for a special purpose. Set apart by God for a special purpose. A holy life is not a perfect life. It's a purposeful life. It's a purposeful life. And so this morning, we're going to talk a little bit about the purpose of human life. Because that's what sanctity means. We have been set aside for a special purpose. And so when God, back, if you look back into the Old Testament, when he came and, and he chose Abraham and, and to make this nation, this special people, did, did he choose these people because they were better than other people? And the answer is no. When he said, you are going to be a holy nation set apart for me, it's not like I've looked around and you're better. It's no, I'm going to do, I have a special purpose for you. I have a special purpose for you. He instructed them to build this building called the temple. And it was called holy because God had a, a special purpose for that place. And the things in that temple were, were holy. The, the candlesticks and the curtains and and the posts, and, and, and was it because the posts came from holy cedar trees? Different cedar trees than were used to build your house? No. Same wood. Same materials. Different purpose. Set apart for God's special purpose. That's what it means to be holy. And what we're going to find out this morning, that human life is holy. That you, as a human being, are Holy. At the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, it starts, if you've ever gotten that far, with the creation of the world. And so, God makes, it describes God's creating of, of uh, you know, the universe, the stars, and, and earth, and land, and water, and, and plants, and animals. And then we come to the culmination of God's creative work, 
which we find here in Genesis chapter one, verses 27, which says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, you notice there's some interesting words here that I've highlighted. So God created mankind in, say it with me, his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Now, those are important words because that's what makes you holy. That's what makes you distinctive from the dog this morning whose poop you had to clean up or the pig you ate at breakfast. God only uses these words to refer to you, to to me, to humans. Nothing else does he describe as being created in his image except for us. Image, we're gonna find, is everything. What we're supposed to see here is that human beings are distinctive in God's created order. And so if you go into Genesis chapter two, you find that uh, when, it, when it goes into more detail about how God makes man, he, he, he takes earth and he forms a man. I mean, it's the same stuff that he used to make the pig and the zebra fish. My daughter, who's in grade six here in school, uh, last week we were driving home after I picked her up from school, and I guess in science class they've been learning some cool stuff. Dad, did you know that we are 87% the same as zebrafish? I didn't know that. I guess that's why some of you look the way you do. I don't, there's, there's just a little more zebrafish in you than others, but... Pigs are 90, 95% human. You know, there's just a small variation there, right? So what really makes us different in the end? And this is actually more and more what our society is wrestling with. Is there really anything special about human beings? Or are we just another animal, a smarter animal? Well, after God kind of collects this earth, it says in in Genesis chapter two that he breathes the breath of life into the man and he comes alive, okay? Now that that word breath is the same, it's the same word for spirit, exact same word. God breathes his spirit and it never uses this terminology with anything else God makes but man. God breathes his spirit into the man and the person becomes a human being. We are people in which there is, in some sense, God's spirit. What does it mean to be made in God's image? Well, it it means, first off, that we have a unique purpose, a unique job. The next verse says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And you see those words rule and subdue and you're thinking, like, is this like God saying, just like, mine that earth. You know, like, just get it in a headlock, give it a noogie and say, who's your daddy? No. Too much TV watching? I don't watch TV, I watch Netflix. That's different. (laughs) Who watches TV anymore? What he's saying is, you have a special role as human beings. You are my representatives on the earth. 
Everything I've made, you are to be caretakers. You are representative of God's perfect righteous rule on the earth. That's your job. Caretakers of what I've made. So he gives this unique job to man. Humans, to be made in the image of God also means that humans have a unique value. This is why uh, God will go on to say in uh, Genesis chapter 9, a few chapters later, that uh, this is the story of Noah. Chapter 9, verse 5, and God says to them, and your life, for your lifeblood I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being too. I, would, I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. How you treat another human being. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For the, in the image of God has God made mankind. He says, be very careful how you treat human beings. They are made in my image. They are holy. They have a unique value to God, an intrinsic worth. We as human beings, apart from all, all else that God has created, God has given the ability to know him. You can know God and God, God made you to know him. God made you to live forever. I don't know about Fluffy. I don't know what happens to Fluffy. But God made us to know him and enjoy him forever. We have intrinsic worth because we bear the image of God. And so we see David saying in Psalm 139, starting at verse 13, God, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. You saw, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. David is saying a few things here. The first thing he's saying is that God is the maker of all life. I mean, I have to come in convince you on that but 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 listen he's saying it's God that's knitting you together mom and dad provide the DNA but the person forming work that is happening there beginning at conception is the purpose or the person forming work of God who is intimately involved in this process he is knit notice God knits he doesn't crochet I just want to point that out the word crochet is the Hebrew word meshek. This is kelem, which is knit. I made that up. But it's, but it's worth noting God knits, but he does not crochet. So God knits us together. He is the one putting us together in body and mind and in spirit. That is the work of God. That's the first thing he says here. The second thing he says is that God's purpose uh, making work, person making work is, is, is wonderful. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Now the word fearful there doesn't mean I'm scared of something. It means that I, I feel reverence and awe about what God has made and about his work in making it. When we look at another human being, when we look at ourselves, and when we look at others, we need to see that we are, we need to be in awe 
of who we are and what God has made us as human beings to be, every one of us. I mean, animals do what God made animals to do. My dog, he pretty much does the same thing every day. He, he, he eats, he can hear a package open a mile away. He eats, he sleeps, he does his business. He does, he does what God made him to do. God made man to be like him. He has given us the creative ability, the mind, in a way, of God. We alone have the ability to know the one who made us, to know God. We have the ability, like God, to create, to make that which is beautiful, art. Some people like art. Some people go to museums to see these beautiful pieces of art that man has made, or to orchestras to hear this beautiful music that man has created. Um, we, we can behold, we can make beauty and we can behold beauty. Uh, I don't know that they do it anymore. Remember Coca-Cola, they had that, for years they had that uh, commercial campaign with bears, polar bears. Remember that? And what would the polar bears always do? And they would drink their Coke on the side of a snowy hill, watching the, I, I may be the only one that saw the commercial, but watching the northern lights. Remember that? They're sitting there being bedazzled by the northern lights. Do you know what polar bears don't do? They don't watch the northern lights. Can you imagine? Yeah, they don't. They actually don't go up on the side of a hill and just sit there and go, Wow, that's amazing. And they don't drink Coke. That's another little detail there. You know, okay, you know what? No animal does. No animal does. You know who does? Those made in God's image who can make beauty and who can behold beauty and who can encounter God and what he has made. We are unique. We are holy in all that God has made. So he says, God's work in making us, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And then uh, David also says that um, uh, in, in verse 16 there, that all the days ordained for me were written in your book, God, before one of them came to be. In other words, you made me with a plan and a purpose. You care for me. You are intimately involved in, in, in my life, whether I know it or not. You made me with a plan and a purpose. This is what it means to be human. This is why we are holy, set apart. We are highly valued by God. And yet, I mean, if we're honest, we're deeply broken people. And, and we might bear the image of God, but sometimes we wonder if that image is still really there because of what we go through, the suffering maybe that we go through, the things we encounter, or maybe our own missteps, our own sins in our life. And so we're wrestling with all of this. I know as a society right now in 2019, and, and um, I think understanding these truths, the sanctity of life, helps us to understand how we deal with certain issues in our day uh, today, particularly with respect to life's beginning and life's end. Lots of different ideas about what does the value of human life mean at life's beginning and at life's and the definition of a human being is, do you know the definition of a human being? According to the government of Canada? Let me read it. 
A human being. A child becomes a human being when it, is compl- when it has completely proceeded in a living state from the body of its mother. Whether or not it is breathed um, or has independent circulation or the navel string is severed. So when that body is completely out of mom's body, it's, it becomes a human being at that moment. Now if, if this is the legal definition, okay? So if, if, if it's half out, it's not yet a human being. It's when it's all out. And so I actually had a sister. She... she at nine months, at full term, they were trying to get her out of my mom's womb before she died. And they, 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 they missed it by about two minutes as, as she suffocated because the cord was wrapped around her neck. And they were working hard, but they didn't, a couple more minutes and she would have made it. But she never ever took a breath. Uh, she fell a couple minutes short. So, according to, to in, in a legal sense, she wasn't a human being. She didn't actually exist. Now, we all know intuitively, but that's, that, that, we, see, we understand that's a legal definition, but we know that that's, that's not a, that doesn't perfectly capture what it, what it means to be a human. We understand that, and so we continue to wrestle with this, and it's, it's because of that definition that, that abortion is such a contentious issue in our society. Yes, no, maybe in some cases. What do we, how do we think about that? We wrestle with that. Okay, we know the legality, but, but what about, I mean, scientifically, the answer is clear. Abortion is, is the ending, is the killing of human life. I mean, that's just a scientific fact. You can, you can use softer words, but that's, scientifically, that's the reality. Um, but, but we want to know in a spiritual sense, how do we approach this on this issue? The sanctity of human life for, for the unborn. And, and it just begs a few questions, which I think, as we look at, take a few minutes to look at these few questions, will help us understand sanctity of human life at life's beginning, at life's end, and then just everything in between. And so I think with respect to, to the issue of, of the beginning and ending of life, there's, there's a few questions that it begs. The first is, uh, and I'm, I'm going to just pose three here, the question of autonomy. The question of autonomy. And so you'll, you'll see signs, and, and maybe you'll say it yourself, and, and you've heard others say it. It's my body. It's my body. Right? It's my life. So I... I remember when I was a kid watching CBC News, Sue Rodriguez at that point was very famous. She had ALS in Canada. And, and she wanted the ability to end her life because she didn't want to suffer this way. And she did suffer genuinely, horribly. And she didn't want to. She wanted the right to have a physician to be able to end her life. And so this was a big issue. And now in the last couple of years, this has been, you know, this is allowable now. And in fact, actually right now in they're, they're looking at expanding the parameters of, you know, who qualifies for this, but we're wrestling with this as a society. And I remember Sue Rodriguez saying, as she was interviewed, she asked the question, well, whose life is it anyway? Now, the assumption is the answer is, well, obviously it's mine, right? So I have total autonomy over me. But is that the right question? I think maybe we'll find that the right question isn't whose life it, is it anyway mine. The right question is God's. God's. If you go back to where man fell and became broken in Genesis chapter 3, they made a decision to make themselves autonomous from God. God said, Hey, listen, have a good time. Enjoy this world I've made. It's awesome. Don't eat of that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, I, I'm the authority. I, I, I will, life will go best when I tell you what is good and what is evil. 
And men rebelled against that and they said, no, we will decide what is good and what is wrong. We will be autonomous from God. But this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19 verse 20. Uh, you do not know, or do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? In other words, you are holy. You are holy. The Spirit which is in you, whom you have received from God, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. He says, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. And of course, he's referring to Jesus Christ, the perfectly autonomous one. God who created the world, autonomous. Jesus came and he took on flesh and he laid down his life. Jesus didn't say, my body is my own. He says, I lay it down for you, for the world, for each one. And he laid down his body and his body was broken for, for you and for me that we might be in right to a restored relationship with God. And so Paul says, you are not your own. We are accountable to God, even with our own bodies, he says. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Another question is the question of personhood. When does, when does human life that starts at conception, egg, sperm, conception, when does human life become a human being? And, and, and that's, you know, that's a big question. Most, most pregnancies that are ended are ended very early on, in early stages. I don't know what it looks like, a blob? No. With medical advancement, we can kind of know more and more what's going on in there. We've discovered that at three weeks, there's a beating heart. At six weeks, there's brain waves. At nine weeks, uh, that life feels pain. At 11 weeks, that life breathes, sleeps, dreams, tastes, and hears. When does it become a person? When does it become a human being? Well, maybe that's the wrong question. Maybe the question is, is God making a human being? It doesn't really matter what state. Is God making a human being? Uh, someone has said this. He says, this we can say, I think, with great certainty. What is happening in the womb is a unique person-forming work of God. And only God knows how deeply and mysteriously the creation of personhood is woven into the making of a body. He says, therefore, it is arbitrary and unwarranted to assume that at any point in the knitting together of this person, its destruction is not an assault on the unique prerogatives of God as its creator. It is God's work to bring about God's image. And if that's what it is, then ending that, killing that is, I would say, an affront to God's right as creator, as maker. We are undoing what God is doing, destroying what God is creating. Is God making a person? The third question is the question of quality. Now at some point, you hear quality of life all the time, don't you? Quality of life, quality of life. We rate countries, quality of life. Hey, we all want good quality of life. We should all work for that and help others work for that. But I wonder if sometimes we haven't made an exchange. 
quality of life in place of the sanctity of life. And now we're measuring the value of life based on its quality. Who somebody determines, I'm not sure how you perfectly determine which life is worth living and which life isn't worth living. But we have, um, again, with medical advances, prenatal testing. It's pretty amazing now what they can find out. When, when, this, when this little person is being formed, they can actually find out quite early on if it has certain diseases, uh, defects. One of them is, um, well, okay. Let me give you this stat. Okay. So they surveyed people, a bunch of people, and they asked them the question, are you happy with your life? 99% of this people group said yes. 99%. The next question was, do you like who you are? This people group's 97% answered yes. 97%. Do you like who you are? Do you love your family? 99% of them said yes. Now, if, if there was a group that would answer that strongly about how they love their life and they love who they are, um, who are these happy people? They're people with Down syndrome. Maybe you know people with Down syndrome. We have them in this fellowship, in our families. Now with prenatal testing, sadly, parents feel like if this is diagnosed so early, early on, it... That diagnosis may lead to an unfulfilled life. A life not worth living. So due to prenatal testing, um, you don't see too many people with Down syndrome anymore. 70% are aborted in the United States. 90% in the United Kingdom. 98% in Denmark. 100% in Iceland. Right? These people, because of quality of life, 97% say, I love who I am. I love my life. How do we decide what life is worth living and what life isn't worth living? So we are deeply broken people. And that takes so many different forms. Man, I can't imagine being a, a, a well, I can't imagine being a pregnant woman. I guess that goes without saying, doesn't it? I mean... Hopefully that was obvious. But being in a position where all of a sudden you're pregnant and that scares you and that's unexpected and it doesn't, it seems like this is a terrible thing that we are in life financially and in relationship and your addictions and whatever else might be going on. What a hard place to be. What a difficult thing to wrestle with. Or if you're at the other stage of life, you're suffering in, in, in some horrible ways and, and maybe you're questioning, is it, is it better just to end it or, or, to, or to keep going on even though there's more suffering in, in the future? What a, what a difficult place to be. I can't imagine. And yet, God's word says, you are not your own. God says, I give life and I take life away. So I don't think the solution to any hardship, the solution to any suffering is the ending of life, ever. Now if I were to stop there, and I know some of you just wish I would, just, I've heard enough, I want to go home. <laughs> 
If I were to stop there, everything I'd say I, I, I would hope might be true, but it wouldn't be completely true. It'd be incomplete truth. I don't know that it would even really be a Christian message. And, and I prefer to preach Christian messages. Jesus condemned the religious establishment of his day. A lot. He said this to the crowds about the religious leaders. We find it in Matthew chapter 23, verses 3 and 4. He says about the religious leaders to the crowd, he says, uh, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you, the religious leaders, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. You know what he's saying? He's saying, listen, they are telling you the truth of God's word, which sometimes is heavy. Let's not kid ourselves. The easy thing is not always or normally the right thing. The right thing is very often the hard thing. But the right thing is always the good thing, and it always bears good fruit in time. But the right thing is often the hard thing. And some of what God calls us to is hard. It's heavy. And he says, as they give God's word, listen to what they say, but don't do what they do. They, 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 they give you these heavy things, but they don't help you carry them. They don't help you. You know, too often Christians have rightfully earned uh, a reputation for being judgmental. Have you heard of that? Apparently this is a thing. Sometimes, oftentimes earned, sometimes I wonder if we don't insist that people carry a heavy load because it's right. But then we do nothing to help them carry it. Like that young mom wrestling with what to do about this life in her because of all this other brokenness in her life or because of that person dealing with horrible suffering at later stages of life or whenever and wondering whether there's anything left for life, if there's any purpose in any of this. You know, being anti-death isn't the same as being pro-life. What does it mean to be pro-life? It's not the same as anti-death. You know, I wrote that line. I think it's a pretty good one, personally. No? Okay. I wrote that line. And then, uh, I don't know, a couple days ago. And then I read this yesterday. So, on on the news. Uh, Students, uh, high school students from a Catholic high school in Kentucky made a trip to Washington, D.C., where they were going to participate in an anti-abortion rally. The students many of whom were wearing Make America Great Again hats. I don't have to add that detail. From this Catholic high school, we were in Washington for an anti-abortion rally on Friday. To, to, why? Because they were pro-life. Pro-life. When they were filmed surrounding Nathan Phillips, an elderly First Nations leader, a Native American, who was a part of a, an, a, another rally, and he had, his, he had his cultural gear on, and he had his drum, and he was doing some music. They surrounded Nathan Phillips, uh, and, and they mocked the Native Americans singing and drumming. Okay. I I, these people had a pro-life rally. And then that man, Nathan Phillips, he went on to comment. 
He said, I heard them say, build that wall, build that wall. He says, these are indigenous lands. We're not supposed to have walls. But then he said this. I think this is the important thing. He says, I wish I could see that energy of that young mass of young men put that energy into making this country really, really great, helping those that are hungry. In other words, I wish they really were pro-life. Not just anti-death. I really wish they were pro-life. Protected and promoted life. This is a truth. We'll skip over that. Skip over that. I do cut stuff out of my sermon. I know it's hard to believe for some of you. You're like, really? Truth without compassion isn't truthful because God is love. God is love. Truth without compassion isn't truthful. And compassion without truth isn't compassionate because as Jesus said, the truth will set you free. And we live in a world where it seems to be one or the other. Which side are you on? Are you on the truth side or are you on the compassion side? We're told that Jesus came, John chapter one, Jesus came full of grace and truth. Full of truth, pointing people to higher things, greater things that were true and right. The words of God, the will of God, and yet stooping down to people in their sin and their suffering and their brokenness and helping them at every occasion. Full of truth and full of grace, Jesus. He met that Samaritan woman. Remember the story? At the well. He was at a place he shouldn't have been. He was interacting with people he shouldn't have interacted with. They were half-breeds. They were beneath him. And this was a woman married and divorced five times in a sixth relationship. And Jesus engages this woman in conversation and is the first woman, the first person that he actually opens up to and shares the, the, the knowledge that he is the Messiah. Married and divorced five times. He heard Bartimaeus, a blind man, standing along the side of the road, I guess trying to get some coins, some shekels to feed himself. Jesus and the big crowd passed him by and we heard whisperings that Jesus was in the crowd. We're told he cries out, Son of God, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And people were told, try to quiet him. Shh, 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 there's all these people. He's important, he's got other things to do. Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus hears and he stops and he turns around and he wades back through the crowd and he finds Bartimaeus and he says, Son, your faith has made you well. See. And people were bringing little children to Jesus and then the disciples were saying, he's far too busy for these people. Go, go. And Jesus says, no, let the little children come unto me for such is the kingdom of God. He walks into a town and there in a tree, in a tree is a man named Zacchaeus, a wee little man. And a wee little man was he. I believe he was in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see, but I digress. And he was an, a tax collector. He was an outsider. Everyone in the community hated him because of everything he represented. He was on the margins. And the first thing Jesus says when he walks into town is he looks up and he sees Zacchaeus and he says, I am going to have a meal with you. And he goes and changes Zacchaeus' life. 
And he approaches the untouchable lepers. You have to stay a whole football field away from them. They're contagious. They're dirty. He approaches a whole colony of leopards and he touches the untouchable to make them whole. And he looked down from heaven and he saw you. And he saw me. Broken, you know, in, the, in, in some of the mess of our lives. Maybe some of it of our own making our own bad choices, some of it, the things that have been inflicted upon us, the suffering, the trials we go through. He looked down on us and Jesus came. And he went to the cross and he died on that cross for you and for me. Because he loves us, because he wanted us to have life, life to the fullest, Why? Because we are made. He knew this. He made us. We are made in God's image. And yeah, you can, you can tarnish the image. That's why you don't want to sit in the first two rows. I get it now. You, you can... And you, you, can, you can beat up on the image of God through sin and suffering and whatever else. But Jesus knew that in spite of all of that, despite of all the sin and the suffering and anything else, as tarnished and wrinkled and beat up as we might be, we are still the image of God. And so, his final sermon to his disciples, Matthew chapter 25, tells a story. When the Son of Man comes into his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne and he will gather all people before him and then he will separate people onto either side and in verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. These are the words of Jesus now. He is the king, he is this king. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will say to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you? I don't remember this. I'm not recalling this. When did I see you in, in needing of clothes and clothe you? When did I see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And then Jesus the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. When did I do that for you, Jesus? I don't remember that. What he's saying is, every person you meet bears his image. Tarnished, sullied, maybe, beat up a little bit. Every person you meet bears the image of God. And when you treat another as holy, when you give them the dignity that their purpose demands, Jesus says, you do that unto me. You honor me. You glorify me. Because they bear my 
image. And so James would say, James chapter 1, verse 27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after widows and orphans in their distress. So, sanctity of human life. You are holy. Everyone you meet is holy. Each one bears the image of God. What would it look like for us to treat people that way? Taking this home, maybe a few questions to ponder. Is there a type of person about which you have a judgmental spirit? Look at them. Look at the mess they made. Those sort of people, right? Is there a type of person about which you have a judgmental spirit? Well, there's for me. Do I see the image of God in them? How does that affect how I relate to them? Do I promote life? What is one way, another question to ponder, what is one way for you to promote life around you? In your community, neighborhood, your school, your workplace, the people around you are holy. What would it look like? What's a, what are ways that you can promote life, acknowledge the sanctity, the holiness of human life in the way you treat those around you? Because that's our job. Jesus is measuring us on that. Will we love like he has loved? I want you to bow. That's, that's the sign that it's 12.04. And I am bringing this to a close. Why don't you bow your head? I just want to give you, the worship team is going to come up. They're going to lead us in one final song. And I just want to give you a moment to pray in the quietness of your own heart. First of all, just take a moment and Say to God, God, I am fearfully and wonderfully made by you. I am amazing. Thank you, God, for making me wonderfully. Some of you don't think you're so wonderful. Let's take a moment to thank God that he made you. You tell him, I believe that I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, even if I don't feel it today. Take a moment to thank God for his compassion on you. In spite of all of our sin and our brokenness, Jesus came. And he went to the cross for us, and he made a way for us to be restored. He's given us God's grace. Just take a moment to thank God. God for the compassion he has shown to you through his son Jesus makes all the difference then lastly just take a moment and and say God I want to be like you and I want to bring your love and bring your compassion to those around me I want to treat everyone I interact with as holy because they are holy Lord what would it look like what would it look like for me to live in my own life, my own workplace, my school, my neighborhood, for me to live out the sanctity of human life? 